Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. I'm Amy Austin, Senior Reporter FT Advisor, and today I will be discussing what it takes for advice firms to stay in the defined benefit transfer market with Alistair Cunningham, Financial Planning Director at Wingate Financial Planning, and Dominic James Murray, Independent Financial Advisor at Cameron James. So welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Now, the transfer advice market is always, you know, a hot topic for discussion with the FCA's ongoing crackdown on unsuitable advice in the area. I mean, just this week, I don't know if you guys have seen yet at the time of recording, but there has been a court case issued against the DB transfer advisor. So we've got that to look forward to. And obviously, last year, the regulator revealed that, you know, hundreds of firms have quit the market following its intervention. So, Alistair, I thought we'd start with you. What, in your opinion, does it take to be able to make it in this market? I think a firm that's committed to staying in the market will be heavily driven by uh, the process they follow. I know we'll talk later about some of the things they've introduced, but certainly a tightening on the rules on triage, the introduction of a bridge advice and I think too many firms were crossing over into advice when they called it triage Um, that certainly made it much more important that the people that are handling phone calls which in our office will typically be um, support people not advisors are aware of the firm's process Uh, we for example have created education documents around the value of DB benefits and how our process on this advice works but in very simple terms, a firm that wants to remain the market needs to be committed, uh, put the effort in, and it's not something, never should have been, but clearly it's not something that you can dabble in. What about you, Dominic? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I would have to agree with Alistair on that. I mean, <clears throat> for firms who are doing DB business as part of the overall financial planning, um, they may well be doing DBs, but they're also doing lots of other parts of work for their clients and they're not going to be sort of changing their skin overnight or in a couple of years. They've maybe been a financial planning firm for a number of years, and they intend to continue to do so. Um, I think one of the issues which the FCA has had is with firms that kind of pop up um, and then start giving or signing off on DB transfers and then sort of closing down again um, in a short number of years, and perhaps the directors move on to a different company and there's another firm somewhere else. So I agree that firms have a long-term approach. Um, and if you already have a client and he's considering a DB pension transfer, it's really in your interest to try and make sure he does make the correct decision because he's already a valuable client. And even if you give advice to not proceed, um, it may well be that they actually refer you for that type of advice because you've still given them a correct financial planning. So, yeah, um, I'd have to agree. Sure. And do you think, you know, the biggest issue for firms that are kind of leaving this market at the moment would be professional indemnity insurance? Because, I mean, this comes up a lot. Like it's hard to obtain for DB transfer advisors at the moment and it's really expensive. So, do you, I mean, I know a couple of firms that I have spoken to said that their main reason for leaving the market was purely PI, not because, you know, they didn't have the clients or, you know, it was they were finding it hard or because the FCA was cracking down. It was purely because it was just becoming too expensive. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest issues as well is for anybody who wants to enter the market, it's almost impossible now to get new PI insurance um, to give DB advice. You basically, you can only get reinsured almost if you're already in the market. And obviously those premiums are going up dramatically. Last year, we saw a number of firms uh, leaving the market, which then obviously has the knock-on spin effect of saying, well, does the market become less competitive? The providers or the providers that can then give the advice, do clients have so much choice um, as before? But yeah, I would say PI insurances, obviously we talk about it a lot. You can't really talk to any financial advisor and discuss the pension transfers without it coming up. But yeah, I'd say undoubtedly it's one of the number one factors uh, for companies leaving the industry because it's just becoming so onerous on them um, in terms of uh, annual fees. And it doesn't really allow you to plan forward in terms of years because you can't really project what your PI insurance costs are going to be the following year or the year after that. So again, it kind of flies in the face of things because if a firm is saying, okay, we want to continue to give this type of advice over the long term, uh, five or 10 years, they can't really factor it into their business model because they don't know what their overheads are going to be for providing DB advice. Sean, what, what about you, Alistair? What do you think? Well, I, I take a very different view, really. Um, <laughs> the... Professional indemnity insurance is a symptom, uh, not a cause. And by that, I mean, if you're struggling to get terms or your insurance is significantly increased in cost, it would indicate there's probably been an issue with what you've been doing in the past. I know, and I have clients who are professional indemnity underwriters specialising in professional risks, where typically lawyers and financial advisors who don't actually have a massive issue with this because at the end of the day, one of the important things with professional indemnity insurance is it's on a claims made basis. So the first thing is that stopping giving the advice doesn't reduce liability. It might stop the liability getting worse in the future, but the insurer is really concerned about what you've done in the past um, and the probability normally a 12 month period of having a claim. So for a firm that's done a number of DB transfers, stopping, giving the advice in the future isn't really going to have a massive impact, certainly not over the next few years, um, on the insurance that they're going to get or not get or the premiums they're paying, because ultimately the insurer is thinking, how likely am I to have an issue with this uh, firm in the next 12 months, which some of that the firm will have had control over. It'll be down to their process and, and how they've been doing DB transfer work. But also it is quite heavily governed by variables that are outside of the insurer and the advisor's control. Like, for example, What's the chance of the FCA requesting either globally across all firms or just specific firms to do a review of business? And at the moment, it doesn't seem that chance is particularly high, although it's probably increasing as the months go by. So a long answer to a short question. Um, <laughs> I don't think that PI insurance is a massive issue if a firm has been doing things the right way. The problem is that um, a lot of firms obviously have, have either been cutting corners They've been um, doing things that the FCA don't like, like contingent charging. And when the insurer is looking at their proposal, they are more concerned than they might be over the probability of getting claims in the next 12 months. Sure. And on the issue of around contingent charging, do you think that the FCA's, you know, new rules on this and, you know, the introduction of a bridge advice have made it easier or harder to operate in the market? I think contingent charging is a bit of a red herring. Um, if, if you've been doing things properly, then contingent charging isn't really an issue. It does add a few 
inconsistencies, I guess, or, or, or problems that you kind of have to overcome, but they're not insurmountable. And at the end of the day, I'm sympathetic to the FCA. Really, it is a blunt instrument, but ultimately, I think the best solution that was available to them. A bridge device, however, is something that I flip-flopped on. Uh, when I first saw it, I thought it was a nonsense. I then thought, no, this is really good. It's got the opportunity to be of benefit to a number of people. The problem now I still think conceptually it's quite good. The The issue is that nobody really knows what it is uh, or, and don't really know what it isn't. You've got things like, you know, compliance consultants don't help the situation by saying that you can't do things like cash flow planning. That's then been probably refined and a bit more clarity has been given on that in terms of I think most people now think cash flow planning is fine, just don't consider what the CETV might do. But yeah, we've steered clear of it for now until the dust settles because I think I would say, Brilliant idea in concept, somewhat problematic in its implementation. Sean, what about you, Dominic? Yeah, I don't think the the abridged device came out with enough clear points around of exactly what the FCA wanted from it in terms of companies. So I would say there hasn't been that many companies that have rushed in to fill the void for abridged device. Um, And there's also been a couple of instances of firms providing uh, abridged device free of charge, but then that has kind of perhaps flies in with the the ban on contingent charging and potentially trying to game the system. Um, I've seen a couple of articles regarding that as well. So, yeah, again, I think abridged advice, in theory, um, quite a good idea, but hasn't perhaps been fleshed out. Um, and as, as I said, the dust hasn't really settled on it, so it's perhaps easier to see what new legislation comes in place, if any, uh, regarding abridged device before companies can really decide to, to branch out and provide sort of further or a halfway house, as some people are referring to it. I would say I don't have an issue with as bridge advice being no charge. I wouldn't do it on the basis that I think the advice you give should stand on its own two feet. But a bridge advice is a solution to not crossing the line of triage and not giving advice through the back door. Um, a bridge advice is not a solution to the contingent charging issue. So I think, you know, if a firm doesn't want to charge, as long as they're still doing things in the right way, you know, people are um, being told do not transfer or they're being told, we haven't got sufficient information, let's move to full advice. And probably the only proviso that would be added to that is that the the cost of those two shouldn't be greater than other business. I don't really, it should be less than other business. I don't have an issue with some firms doing it on a, a nil cost basis, or, you know, maybe a bridge advice uh, being done as a lost leader. But yeah, it, it, it shouldn't detract from the fundamental two points of, Triage should be just that. It's information, education and nothing more. And contingent charging can't exist. You've got to charge a reasonable fee if you take the client all the way through to implementing a transfer. Sure. And do you think we're going to see, you know, more firms dropping out of this market as we go on? You know, this crackdown seems to be getting like having more weight put behind it. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there's another court case against the DB advisor now. Uh, so it looks like the FCA is doing something about this. And, you know, what does this mean for clients if there's, you know, less and less DB transfer advisors out there for them to go to? Because, I mean, if you need a DB transfer advisor and you live in London and you can only find one that's like in Manchester, it's not great for clients, is it? I think potentially the flip side of looking at that is that, yeah, you can say that people have less choice in the market for the number of firms to choose from 
But sort of talking about Alice's point, a lot of the firms which are potentially exiting the market, as I mentioned, it's maybe because of the the history of the advice that they have given. So there's potentially rationale to say that the advisors that they do continue to talk with um, are going to be perhaps in a better position to give them more suitable advice because uh, they're taking more of a long-term approach and they haven't decided to leave the market and potentially the the better IFAs um, have remained in the market who don't have so many issues with sort of any uh, claims against them from previous years. Obviously, that remains to be seen. Uh, and it might seem like a client that they have less choice, but potentially the options left are of uh, a better value for them in terms of the advice they receive. Sure. And what are your thoughts, Alistair? What, where do you think we're going with this? Yeah, there'll be fewer firms in the market, which is probably the right thing to happen. There'll be people dropping out because they have historically dabbled. We don't know the FCA numbers, but I I would imagine a lot of the firms that have um, given up permissions actually weren't giving DB advice. Um, And I know that there were letters written to firms where they were saying, you're not using permissions. Would you mind awfully giving up your giving up the permissions? So so that artificially will inflate the numbers, because if they weren't going to give the advice, they weren't going to give the advice. They haven't really left the market, have they? But then there'll be firms, you know, that have had the Section 166s and that kind of thing. And um, I think the FCA's enforcement will toughen up. Many people, including myself, would say that is somewhat late. But um, enforcement will also cause people to leave. And I think probably the attitude that I've held for six years will start to become more common which is that most people shouldn't transfer. So these people that have rung up saying, oh, you know, my transfer rate is really high. Well, obviously, a lot of them may already have transferred and, that, and those numbers will start to drop off. But also, I think the tide has now turned. And, and unless you've got significant ill health, um, you know, severe um, financial detriment, um, if you've got you know, maybe moving overseas, that kind of thing, or, and this is one I don't tend to hold too much truck with, but I do understand why people argue it, significant other wealth, you shouldn't be transferring. Um, and, and the issue is probably a lot of the people that have transferred have done so when it was marginal or probably not in their best interests. And reality is if you know, for the next five years, those people in the same circumstances don't transfer, uh, brilliant. But ultimately, your average consumer will now feel that they've got more, uh, they've got less choice and I do think also the contingent charging thing will, generally speaking, push up the cost of the advice because by its nature, every single client has to be individually profitable and you can't have the um, the loss leading subsidy situation that you probably had in the past. So I don't think that's a bad outcome. That's just the way things will go. Sure. I guess it's just a watch this space thing now, isn't it? You know, what's it going to do next? Where are we going next? I guess yeah, the most interesting thing for me is what, ha- what yeah, particularly what the FCA do, because, you know, uh, la- largely, I-, I don't think there's any doubt, most of this is now behind us. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the, ne- the next 10, 15 years, we'll probably see far fewer transfers than the last five years have. Um, so mm-hmm. most of this is now behind us. Um, the question is, where do the FCA go in terms of, you know, the Section 166 is the enforcement, uh, past business review. I mean, it amazes me still that there are firms that we know have been doing transfers of a poor quality on an industrial scale that haven't even had to do past business reviews, which obviously mm. in, in the 90s when they were um, pension transfer review, that was basically the, the primary exercise. But it may never happen. I, I, who knows? We'll see, won't we? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. We will now be having a short break, but stay tuned for when I will be discussing this week's biggest news stories with reporters Imogen Chu and Rachel Mortimer.
Welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. Joining me now to have a chat about the latest goings on are Imogen Chu and Rachel Mortimer, senior reporters at FT Advisor. So, Imi, there was some pretty big news in the platform space earlier this week. Um, do you want to tell us what happened? Sure. So um, after what seems like a few months of talks, uh, James Hay and Nucleus have reached an agreement in which James Hay is going to buy its rival, the Nucleus uh, rap platform, for £145 million. It's been in the works for a while. Um, Transact, private equity firm Aquiline and a fund distribution platform called All Funds were basically all interested in buying Nucleus at the start. They were kind of proposing different cash offers back in December. And then since then, they've kind of dropped one by one. And James Hay was like the last man standing. Uh, I think Transact and James Hay were considered like the big players. But um, James Hay has obviously kind of reached the end point now. So yeah, so they've agreed to deal, which basically gives shareholders a bit of a premium on Nucleus's share price. The deal is subject to kind of regulatory and shareholder approval, but is expected to complete in Q2 of this year. And I imagine it would go ahead. Um, these deals, A, normally do, but B, the board has recommended shareholders say yes. And Sanlam, the advice firm which owns 52% of Nucleus, has agreed to vote in favour of the deal. So we should kind of see that complete um, in, in the second quarter of this year. Sure. And what is this going to mean for, you know, all the advisors out there? So I think more widely, it creates um, another pretty big player in the market. Combined, they'll have assets of around 45 billion, which puts them in kind of the semi near the the upper part of the market. So it could shift dynamics a bit in the platform space in that way. It could also kind of give scope to grow Nucleus, which has been kind of quite innovative in terms of technology and product-wise. They recently launched DFM and it brought its tech in-house so it could kind of do more work on that. So kind of with James Hay and James Hay's private equity backer kind of behind it, you could see Nucleus kind of move in a kind of strong direction. Then more directly, James Hay has said its intention in the medium to long term will be to shift Nucleus away from Bravura, which is its current technology provider, and towards FNZ, which is a tech firm which it has kind of a long-term strategic partnership with. Hopefully that all goes smoothly, but there's always room for disruption in this kind of scenario. And traditionally, re-platformings haven't gone too smoothly. So um, there's always kind of room for nucleus advisors to kind of like fill the brunt of that. Sure. And um, hasn't there been like quite a lot of platform consolidation going on recently? So how is it going to like slot into all of this? Yeah, I mean, it fits exactly in kind of the trend of the market. It's not against the grain at all. Big, big trend for the past few years has been platform consolidation as kind of prices get pushed down. It's all about scale now in the platform market. If your margins are tighter, you need to be bigger. It's kind of the the underlying crux there. The obvious examples are uh, Embark bought Zurich, Royal London sold Eccentric to M&G, but there's smaller ones too. Private equity firms have got involved, especially Anacap, which is a private equity firm that's bought Wealthtime and Novia and a smaller advisor platform as well. So we've got seen like private equity firms rear their heads as well. There's also at least one deal ongoing, well, one that we know about anyway, um, which is Standard Life Aberdeen is selling Armenian. We currently don't know at the time of recording who's going to buy that or whether it's even going to kind of have a successful sale. But I mean, yeah, just in that list, you've kind of heard lots and lots of big names that have been involved in the trend. So I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. Well, watch this space, eh? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, let's move on to our favourite topic. <laughs> so this last week has also seen MPs begin their questioning around the LCS scandal. So what do we know about this so far, Rach? Yeah, so the Treasury Committee, as you say, has started its round of evidence sessions investigating the London capital finance scandal and sort of FCA's uh, supervision of it. It obviously follows the very damning report by Dame Elizabeth Gloucester just before Christmas, which found that the FCA had really let down the, the bondholders in, in LCF and there was a sort of litany of of failings there. We learned a bit more uh, last week when Dame Elizabeth was up in front of MPs. I think one of the strongest points to come out of it was her suggestion that the FCA, on behalf of Andrew Bailey and two other directors there, had put forward legal submissions asking for them not to be named in the report at some points. I don't know if you've ever listened to Gloucester speak, but she is certainly not someone whose eyes you would like to pull the wool over. <laughs> um, so she did not take very kindly to this. She said it was inappropriate in quite a serious way to suggest that the name shouldn't be included. And that sort of opinion was seen to be mirrored by the MPs as well. Um, and then yesterday, Andrew Bailey himself was quite long awaited. He was up in front of MPs as well. On which point, actually, that that name sort of omitting point, he strongly sort of refuted, said he was very angry that that had been the suggestion and that it had been misinterpreted misinterpreted but yeah I mean this has been going on now for for more than well more than a year and a half and the MPs their questions were quite pointed I mean for example they asked uh, Dame Elizabeth if the FCA was an institute which was trying to ease the pressure of the investigation on itself they really seem to be doubling down on this and some commentators have suggested that the result of, of this investigation by the Treasury Committee will be some sort of crackdown on the FCA and how it's run. Sure. And what else did we learn from Mr Bailey yesterday? So in fairness to him, he came straight out and said, look, I accept responsibility for the FCA. I was the chief executive at the time and everything that happened there was my responsibility. But then also spends the rest of the session sort of giving excuses as to why it's not really his fault, (laughs) why nothing could have been done differently. So he said that he wasn't actually aware of LCF until basically at the point at which it collapsed. He points to the call centre and the fact that all these sort of tip-offs from consumers were being buried in 20,000 calls a year, I think he said it was. But yeah, he says, again, he really sort of doubled down on the point that he was angry at the, the suggestion that his name was asked to be omitted from the report. And oh, I, I, I neglected to mention that Dame Elizabeth also um, had a bit of a pop at Bailey's apology following her report and saying that while she agreed with him that he'd inherited a bit of a difficult situation, the apology wasn't an adequate excuse for the LCF fallout, something which but Bailey didn't take very kindly to in yesterday's session either. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think Bailey's biggest critics certainly weren't satisfied by his performance yesterday and the sort of reasoning he gave for the FCA's failings. It also comes a bit of a, a bit of salt in the wound for advisors who this week received a letter from the FSCS detailing the supplementary levy, which of course we already knew about, but this is sort of landing on their doorsteps now. And in there it has its own bullet point is the bill that's come from the London Capital and Finance fallout. Uh, so mm. yeah, I think people will be left wanting more in terms of Bailey's explanation f- for it. Well, thank you both for joining me and tune in next week for the next episode. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.